0: SECTION 2 OF THE WANING OF THE MIDDLE AGES A STUDY OF THE FORMS OF LIFE, THOUGHT AND ART IN FRANCE AND THE NETHERLANDS IN THE FOURTEENTH AND FIFTEENTH CENTURIES. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE WANING OF THE MIDDLE AGES BY JOHANN HEISINGER TRANSLATED BY FREDERICK JAN HOPMAN the violent tenor of life part two an atmosphere of passion and adventure enveloped the lives of princes it was not popular fancy alone which lent it that colour a present-day reader studying the history of the middle ages based on official documents will never sufficiently realise the extreme excitability of the medieval soul the picture drawn mainly from official records though they may be the most reliable sources will lack one element that of the vehement passion possessing princes and peoples alike to be sure the passionate element is not absent from modern politics but it is now restrained and diverted for the most part by the complicated mechanism of social life five centuries ago it still made frequent and violent eruptions into practical politics upsetting rational schemes in princes this violence of sentiment is doubled by pride and the consciousness of power, and therefore operates with a twofold impetus. It is not surprising, says Chastellane, that princes often live in hostility. For princes are men, and their affairs are high and perilous, and their natures are subject to many passions, such as hatred and envy. Their hearts are veritable dwelling places of these, because of their pride in reigning in writing the history of the house of burgundy the leitmotif should constantly keep before our minds the spirit of revenge nobody of course will now seek the explanation of the whole conflict of power and interests whence proceeded the secular struggle between france and the house of austria in the family feud between orleans and burgundy all sorts of causes of a general nature political economic ethnographic have contributed to the genesis of that great conflict. But we should never forget that the apparent origin of it and the central motive dominating it was, to the men of the 15th century and even later, the thirst for revenge. To them, Philip the Good is always, in the first place, the avenger. He who, to avenge the outrage done to the person of Duke John, sustained the war for sixteen years, he had undertaken it as a sacred duty, with the most violent and deadly hatred, he would give himself up to revenge the dead, as far as ever God would permit him, and he would devote to it body and soul, substance and lands, submitting everything to fortune, considering it more a solitary task and agreeable to God to undertake it than to leave it read the long list of expiatory deeds which the treaty of arras demanded in fourteen thirty five chapels monasteries churches chapters to be founded crosses to be erected masses to be chanted then one realises the immensely high rate at which men valued the need of vengeance and of reparations to outraged honour the burgundians were not alone in thinking after this fashion the most enlightened man of his century aeneas silvius in one of his letters praises philip above all the other princes of his time for his anxiety to avenge his father according to la marche this duty of honour and revenge was to the duke's subjects also the cardinal point of policy all the dominions of the duke he says were clamouring for vengeance along with him we shall find it difficult to believe this when we remember for instance the commercial relations between flanders and england a more important political factor it would seem than the honour of the ducal family but to understand the sentiment of the age itself one should look for the avowed and conscious political ideas there can be no doubt that no other political motive could be better understood by the people than the primitive motives of hatred and of vengeance attachment to princes had still an emotional character It was based on the innate and immediate sentiments of fidelity and fellowship it was still feudal sentiment at bottom it was rather party feeling than political the last three centuries of the middle ages are the time of the great party struggles from the thirteenth century onward inveterate party quarrels arise in nearly all countries first in italy then in france the netherlands germany and england Though economic interests may sometimes have been at the bottom of these quarrels, the attempts which have been made to disengage them often smack somewhat of arbitrary construction. The desire to discover economic causes is to some degree a craze with us and sometimes leads us to forget a much simpler psychological explanation of the facts. In the feudal age, the private wars between two families have no other discernible reason than rivalry of rank and covetousness of possessions racial pride thirst of vengeance fidelity are their primary and direct motives there are no grounds to ascribe another economic basis to them than mere greed of one's neighbours riches accordingly as the central power consolidates and extends these isolated quarrels unite agglomerate to groups large parties are formed are polarised so to say while their members know of no other grounds for their concord or enmity than those of honour tradition and fidelity their economic differences are often only a consequence of their relation towards their rulers every page of medieval history proves the spontaneous and passionate character of the sentiments of loyalty and devotion to the prince at abbeville in fourteen sixty two a messenger comes at night Bringing the news of a dangerous illness of the Duke of Burgundy, his son requests the good towns to pray for him. At once, the aldermen order the bells of the church of Saint Wolfram to be rung. The whole population wakes up and goes to church, where it remains all night in prayer, kneeling or prostrate on the ground, with grand allumeries marvellous, while the bells keep tolling. It might be thought that the schism which had no dogmatic cause, could hardly awaken religious passions in countries distant from Avignon and of Rome, in which the two popes were only known by name. Yet in fact it immediately engendered a fanatical hatred, such as exists between the faithful and infidels. When the town of Bruges went over to the obedience of Avignon, a great number of people left their house, trade or prepend, to go and live according to their party views, in some diocese of the urbanist obedience liege utrecht or elsewhere in thirteen eighty two the oriflamme which might only be unfurled in a holy cause was taken up against the flemings because they were urbanists that is infidels pierre salmon a french political agent arriving at utrecht about easter could not find a priest there willing to admit him to the communion service because they said i was a schismatic and believed in benedict the anti-pope the emotional character of party sentiments and of fidelity was further heightened by the powerfully suggestive effect of all the outward signs of these divergences liveries colors badges party cries during the first years of the war between the armagnacs and the burgundians these signs succeeded each other in paris with a dangerous alternation a purple hood with the cross of saint andrew white hoods then violet ones even priests women and children wore distinctive signs the images of saints were decorated with them it was asserted that certain priests during mass and in baptizing refused to make the sign of the cross in the orthodox way but made it in the form of a saint andrew cross in the blind passion with which people followed their lord or their party the unshakable sentiment of right characteristic of the middle ages is trying to find expression man at that time is convinced that right is absolutely fixed and certain justice should prosecute the unjust everywhere and to the end reparation and retribution have to be extreme and assume the character of revenge in this exaggerated need of justice primitive barbarism pagan at bottom blends with the christian conception of society the church on the one hand had inculcated gentleness and clemency and tried in that way to soften judicial morals on the other hand in adding to the primitive need of retribution the horror of sin it had to a certain extent stimulated the sentiment of justice and sin to violent and impulsive spirits was only too frequently another name for what their enemies did the barbarous idea of retaliation was reinforced by fanaticism the chronic insecurity made the greatest possible severity on the part of the public authorities desirable crime came to be regarded as a menace to order and society as well as an insult to divine majesty thus it was natural that the late middle ages should become the special period of judicial cruelty. That the criminal deserved his punishment was not doubted for a moment. The popular sense of justice always sanctioned the most rigorous penalties. At intervals the magistrate undertook regular campaigns of severe justice, now against brigandage, now against sorcery or sodomy. What strikes us in this judicial cruelty, and in the joy the people felt at it, is rather brutality than perversity torture and executions are enjoyed by the spectators like an entertainment at a fair the citizens of mons bought a brigand at far too high a price for the pleasure of seeing him quartered at which the people rejoiced more than if a new holy body had risen from the dead the people of bruges in 1488 during the captivity of maximilian king of the romans cannot get their fill of seeing the tortures inflicted on a high platform in the middle of the market-place on the magistrates suspected of treason the unfortunates are refused the death-blow which they implore that the people may feast again upon their torments both in france and in england the custom existed of refusing confession and the extreme unction to a criminal condemned to death sufferings and fear of death were to be aggravated by the certainty of eternal damnation in vain had the council of vienne in thirteen eleven ordered to grant them at least the sacrament of penitence towards the end of the fourteenth century the same custom still existed charles v himself moderate though he was had declared that no change would be made in his lifetime the chancellor pierre de Rangemont, whose fort savel says philippe de Monsieur, was more difficult to turn than a millstone remained deaf to the humane remonstrances of the latter it was only after gerson had joined his voice to that of Monsieur that a royal decree of the twelfth of february thirteen ninety seven ordered that confession should be accorded to the condemned a stone cross erected by the care of pierre de Creon, who had interested himself in the decree Mark the place where the Minorite Friars might assist penitents going to execution, and even then the barbarous custom did not disappear. Etienne Ponchier, Bishop of Paris, had to renew the decree of thirteen eleven in fifteen hundred. In fourteen twenty seven a noble brigand is hanged in Paris. At the moment when he is going to be executed, the great treasurer of the regent appears on the scene and vents his hatred against him he prevents his confession in spite of his prayers he climbs the ladder behind him shouting insults beats him with a stick and gives the hangman a thrashing for exhorting the victim to think of his salvation the hangman grows nervous and bungles his work the cord snaps the wretched criminal falls on the ground breaks a leg and some ribs and in this condition has to climb the ladder again the middle ages knew nothing of all those ideas which have rendered our sentiment of justice timid and hesitating, doubts as to the criminal's responsibility, the conviction that society is, to a certain extent, the accomplice of the individual, the desire to reform instead of inflicting pain, and, we may even add, the fear of judicial errors, or rather these ideas were implied, unconsciously, in the very strong and direct feeling of pity and of forgiveness which alternated with extreme severity instead of lenient penalties inflicted with hesitation the middle ages knew but the two extremes the fullness of cruel punishment and mercy when the condemned criminal is pardoned the question whether he deserves it for any special reason is hardly asked for mercy has to be gratuitous like the mercy of god in practice it was not always pure pity which determined the question of pardon the princes of the fifteenth century were very liberal of lettres de remission for misdeeds of all sorts and contemporaries thought it quite natural that they were obtained by the intercession of noble relatives the majority of these documents however concerned poor common people the contrast of cruelty and of pity recurs at every turn in the manners and customs of the Middle Ages. On the one hand, the sick, the poor, the insane, are objects of that deeply moved pity, born of a feeling of fraternity akin to that which is so strikingly expressed in modern Russian literature. On the other hand, they are treated with incredible hardness or cruelly mocked. The chronicler Pierre de Fanin, having described the death of a gang of brigands, winds up naively, and people laughed a good deal because they were all poor men in fourteen twenty five an esbatement takes place in paris of four blind beggars armed with sticks with which they hit each other in trying to kill a pig which is the prize of the combat on the evening before they are led through the town all armed with a great banner in front on which was pictured a pig and preceded by a man beating a drum in the fifteenth century female dwarfs were objects of amusement as they still were at the court of spain when velasque painted their infinitely sad faces madame d'or the blonde dwarf of philip the good was famous she was made to wrestle at a court festival with the acrobat hands at the wedding feasts of charles the bold in fourteen sixty eight madame de beaugrand the female dwarf of mademoiselle of burgundy enters dressed like a shepherdess mounted on a golden lion larger than a horse she is presented to the young duchess and placed on the table as to the fate of these small creatures the account books are more eloquent for us than any sentimental complaint could be they tell us of a dwarf girl whom a duchess caused to be fetched from her home and how her parents came to visit her from time to time and receive a gratuity au père de ballon la folle qui est venu vivre sa fille twenty seven shillings and sixpence the poor fellow perhaps went home well pleased and much elated about the court function of his daughter that same year a locksmith of blois furnished two iron collars the one to make fast ballon the fool and the other to put round the neck of the monkey of her grace the duchess in the harshness of those times there is something ingenuous which almost forbids us to condemn it when the massacre of the armagnacs was in full swing in 1418 the parisians founded a brotherhood of saint andrew in the church of saint eustache every one priest or layman wore a wreath of red roses so that the church was perfumed by them as if it had been washed with rose water the people of arras celebrated the annulment of the sentences for witchcraft which during the whole year 1461 had infested the town like an epidemic by joyous festivals and a competition in acting Folly moralisee, of which the prizes were a gold fleur-de-lis a brace of capons etc nobody it seems thought any more of the tortured and executed victims so violent and motley was life that it bore the mixed smell of blood and of roses the men of that time always oscillate between the fear of hell and the most naïve joy between cruelty and tenderness between harsh asceticism and insane attachment to the delights of this world between hatred and goodness always running to extremes after the close of the middle ages the mortal sins of pride, anger, and covetousness have never again shown the unabashed insolence with which they manifested themselves in the life of preceding centuries. The whole history of the House of Burgundy is like an epic of overweening and heroic pride, which takes the form of bravura and ambition with Philippe le Hardy, of hatred and envy with Jean sans peur, of the lust of vengeance and fondness for display with Philip the Good a foolhardy temerity an obstinacy with charles the bold mediaeval doctrine found the root of all evil either in the sin of pride or in cupidity both opinions were based on scripture texts a superbia initium sumsit sum sit omnis perditio radix omnia malorum es cupiditas it seems nevertheless that from the twelfth century downward people began to find the principle of evil rather in cupidity than in pride the voices which condemn blind cupidity la cieca cupidigia of dante become louder and louder pride might perhaps be called the sin of the feudal and hierarchic age very little property is in the modern sense liquid while power is not yet associated predominantly with money it is still rather inherent in the person and depends on a sort of religious awe which he inspires it makes itself felt by pomp and magnificence or a numerous train of faithful followers feudal or hierarchic thought expresses the idea of grandeur by visible signs lending to it a symbolic shape of homage paid kneeling of ceremonial reverence pride therefore is a symbolic sin and from the fact that in the last resort it derives from the pride of lucifer the author of all evil it assumes a metaphysical character. Cupidity, on the other hand, has neither this symbolic character nor these relations with theology. It is a purely worldly sin, the impulse of nature and of the flesh. In the later Middle Ages, the conditions of power had been changed by the increased circulation of money and an illimitable field opened to whosoever was desirous of satisfying his ambitions by heaping up wealth to this epoch cupidity becomes the predominant sin riches have not acquired the spectral impalpability which capitalism founded on credit will give them later what haunts the imagination is still the tangible yellow gold the enjoyment of riches is direct and primitive it is not yet weakened by the mechanism of an automatic and invisible accumulation by investment the satisfaction of being rich is found either in luxury and dissipation, or in gross avarice. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, feudal and hierarchic pride had lost nothing as yet of its vigour. The relish for pomp and display is as strong as ever. This primitive pride has now united itself with the growing sin of cupidity, and it is this mixture of the two which gives the expiring Middle Ages a tone of extravagant passion that never appears again a furious chorus of invectives against cupidity and avarice rises up everywhere from the literature of that period preachers moralists satirical writers chroniclers and poets speak with one voice hatred of rich people especially of the new rich who were then very numerous is general official records confirm the most incredible cases of unbridled avidity told by the chronicles in 1436 a quarrel between two beggars in which a few drops of blood had been shed had soiled the church of the innocents at paris the bishop jacques de chatelier a very ostentatious grasping man of a more worldly disposition than his station required refused to consecrate the church anew unless he received a certain sum of money from the two poor men which they did not possess so that the service was interrupted for twenty-two days. Even worse happened under his successor, Denis de Moulin. During four months of the year 1441, he prohibited both burials and processions in the Cemetery of the Innocents, the most favoured of all, because the church could not pay the tax he demanded. This Denis de Moulon was reputed a man who showed very little pity to people if he did not receive money or some equivalent and it was told for truth that he had more than fifty lawsuits before the parliament for nothing could be got out of him without going to law a general feeling of impending calamity hangs over all perpetual danger prevails everywhere to realize the continuous insecurity in which the lives of great and small alike were passed it suffices to read the details which monsieur pierre champion has collected regarding the persons mentioned by villon in his testament or the notes of m a tuetet to the diary of a burgher of paris they present to us an interminable string of lawsuits crimes assaults and persecutions a chronicle like that of jacques duclerc or a diary such as that of the citizen of metz philippe de vigneul perhaps lay too much stress on the darker side of contemporary life but every investigation of the careers of individual persons seems to confirm them by revealing to us strangely troubled lives in reading the chronicle of matthew descruchy simple exact impartial moralizing one would think that the author was a studious quiet and honest man his character was unknown before monsieur de fresnay de beaucourt had elicited the history of his life from the archives but what a life it was that of this representative of Colleriique Picardy, Alderman, then towards fourteen forty five Provost of Peron, we find him from the outset engaged in a family quarrel with Jave Froment, the city syndic. They harass each other reciprocally with lawsuits for forgery and murder, for excess et The attempt of the Provost to get the widow of his enemy condemned for witchcraft costs him dear summoned before the parlement of paris himself d'escucci is imprisoned we find him again in prison as an accused on five more occasions always in grave criminal causes and more than once in heavy chains a son of Froment wounds him in an encounter each of the parties hires brigands to assail the other after this long feud ceases to be mentioned in the records others arise of similar violence all this does not check the career of Descucci. He becomes bailiff, provost of Ragmont, procureur du roi at saint Quintin. He is ennobled. He is taken prisoner at Montlery, then comes back maimed from a later campaign. Next he marries, but not to settle down to a quiet life. Once more he appears accused of counterfeiting seals conducted to Paris, comme la Roe et forced into confessions by torture prevented from appealing condemned then rehabilitated and again condemned till the traces of this career of hatred and persecutions disappear from the records is it surprising that the people could see their fate and that of the world only as an endless succession of evils bad government exactions the cupidity and violence of the great wars and brigandage scarcity misery and pestilence to this is contemporary history nearly reduced in the eyes of the people the feeling of general insecurity which was caused by the chronic form wars were apt to take by the constant menace of the dangerous classes by the mistrust of justice was further aggravated by the obsession of the coming end of the world and by the fear of hell of sorcerers and of devils The background of all life in the world seems black. Everywhere the flames of hatred arise and injustice reigns. Satan covers a gloomy earth with his sombre wings. In vain the militant church battles. Preachers deliver their sermons. The world remains unconverted. According to a popular belief, current towards the end of the 14th century, no one, since the beginning of the great Western schism, Had entered Paradise. End of section two. Read by Florence Russell.